Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Justin Cronin, whose latest novel is The City of Mirrors. It's the third part of a trilogy. First volume was The Passage, second, The Twelve. Also the author of Marion O'Neill and The Summer Guest, this trilogy is a fantasy, horror, science fiction trilogy. I put Western in there, too, because it's kind of like that, too. When I interviewed you for The Passage, you'd obviously had been published, you'd gotten your advance, sure. but there was no way of knowing how it would hit. You never know. You put a book in a basket and you float it down the river and hope Pharaoh finds it. The earlier books, Summer Guest and Marion mm. O'Neill, they got good reviews, sure. but they were kind of literary. Yeah, they were quieter books, no question. I mean, the... Marion O'Neill won a couple of prizes, which was really, that was how the, my career, I would say, kind of, I banged a few pitons into the wall of a literary career because even though the book had not sold a lot of copies, it was never intended to, right? right? It was a small advance. It was a good press. It was it was Random House. It was style press. But I, I mean, I had no expectations that, that it was going to, you know, put a lot of money in my pocket. I didn't write it for that. I spent eight years writing that book. I was probably paid about 10 cents an hour. For the passage... Now, I know it began when your eight-year-old daughter was probably like 18 now. Yeah, she's actually 19, turning 20. <laughs> she's a freshman in college, yeah. Well, she was eight years old, and yeah. she, she came to you and said, Daddy, why don't you write a book where a little girl is the hero? Yeah, yeah, that's what she did. Yeah, she was concerned that my other books were perhaps boring, because she hadn't read them, of course, but she'd looked at the covers and read the flaps, and it didn't seem so promising to an eight-year-old. <laughs> Let's go back for yeah. a second to that, because it turned out to be a fifteen to 1,700-page enterprise that you wound up mm-hmm. getting and caught in. They've made those pages look like there's fewer words on them than there really are, too. The manuscript for this project, in my 10 years of my life, the manuscript for it is like 3,500 pages long. It's just it, I, I put it next to... a our coffee machine for perspective, right? It's taller than a coffee machine. (laughs) So when you began it, you were writing something that you knew would be very different from anything Mm -hmm, else, and you said, why not? At what point did you get an advance and know you were going to at least write the first volume? I sold all three books at once. I sold it as a trilogy based upon a partial manuscript, which in my case was a 400-page manuscript. For a lot of people, that would be the full manuscript, but for me, it was the first third of the first volume, and I had detailed plan for the rest of that book and then pretty strong summaries of books two and three. So I always knew what the shape of the whole thing was. I'm a real planner. I don't go in and start writing a book in order to find the book. I can't imagine doing that. That sounds more like a seance to me than writing a novel. Well, when you finish the first book, you Mm. turn it in, the galley comes in, you clean it up. How long between that and when you began the second book? That's an interesting question because you're taking me back a few years. Probably between the time I feel done in both instances, you know, between books one and two and then two and three, between the period of time when the book really starts to feel done and off your plate and when you, you're actually building sentences for the next one, it's a 
least six months. So some of that has to do with the publicity cycle, which takes you out of the house and disrupts your routines for a couple of months. But that's also a good thing because you get your mind off it. You get yeah. out of that world a little bit. I'm not sure if that's good for me or not. It's you know, it's good for me socially because I've been locked away in a room and I get to go out into the world again and try to imitate a Homo sapien, which you know I think is psychologically beneficial. And it's good to talk to people who've actually read the book. For this project, it took me out a little bit, and I'd always have a little, maybe a little extra startup time, kind of getting back in the mood. You know, <laughs> was there any time between two and three you kind of said, "Damn, I really don't want to write this right now"? Oh, I think for every writer, there's days like that. Writing a book's hard work, and it's in some ways highly repetitive work. You're writing sentences. You're writing one sentence after another, and sometimes you can feel, you know, like you're out of sentences. You've written all the sentences there are that you have inside you, and on those days, just go take a walk, take a breather, go play with your kids. When you finish with the first one, that's a pretty massive book, um, and you have these other two giant boulders hanging over your head. Was that a little bit scary for you? Not so much, actually, because I, I always knew where I wanted the story to go, and the first book really felt to me like the first third of a story. I never viewed building this this world in this circumstance as material, the way a lot of people will create a world and then have potentially an infinite number of novels within it, right? right. Or in television, an infinite number of seasons until the thing falls apart and you have to just stop, right? right? Yeah, yeah. I, I viewed this as a kind of 2,000-page novel with three discrete novelistic parts to it so my way of going about my job which is what writing is for me and for anybody who writes full-time is to have a very strong plan in advance and to work show up at work every day and have a goal and meet the goal and then go take a swim and then pick up your son at school right and I just it's a series of local goals and if you really thought about it if you said oh I'm I, I have to write you know another 2,000 pages, sure, you know, you'd want to toss yourself off of, off the roof of a building, but I just never allowed myself to think that way. Justin Cronin, at that point, you had some kind of summary of the other two. How, mm-hmm. how long were those summaries? Oh, a few pages each. They described the essential action, the problem of the book, and the solution to the problem, and how that solution would be executed, which sounds very, I think, sort of mechanical, but it's not. That's really what a novel is. And then when I got to each book, when I got to each volume, then I wrote a more detailed approach to it because then you have all this logical stuff you have to figure out. I mean, Virginia Woolf famously said that you could spend a whole day trying to get your characters from the patio to the living room. And that's true both in the micro and the macro. So there's an awful lot of problem solving that has to take place before you really start to work. And that means making sure that all the characters do what they're supposed to do right. and it's intrinsic to them. Exactly. No, I mean, it, there's there's a combination of forces here when you create a character. And one of them, of course, is, is the mysteries of human personality, right? I mean, you really are creating a personality and which contains moments of inconsistency and so on as people do in actual life. And everything that they do, of course, has to feel psychologically true, which includes contradiction. I mean, I think it features contradiction in a lot of ways. But then you also have to remember that these characters are extensions of your will. As a writer, they're actually things that you are moving through a story. So you have a certain amount of authority. Character has a certain amount of authority. Best analog I can have for the whole thing is raising a child. (laughs) There's a guidance that takes place, right? But in the end, they, they do possess a certain autonomy. You know, a child, when you go out for the evening, you might come home and find God knows what in your house. That's not Mm. really going to happen with a character. Mm. I think what would happen with a character is you would say, Amy has to be in this place for this to Mm -hmm. happen. 
and the way that I have her getting there in my outline mm-hmm. does not make sense. And then sure. you have to just sit there and right. Then yeah, that, that's those are the those are sort of the dark moments. The dark moments of writing a book for me are not matters of character or imagination. You know, I always imagine the thing pretty well in advance, and my imagination seems to have kind of no like there's not a lot of restraints on that. I mean, I have to find ways to get at it, but I always succeed at it. And my wife reassures me that that'll happen again. And she's pretty observant of me psychologically. The stuff that drives you crazy is again, more like the physical logic of a story, particularly, you know, the passage is an enormous trilogy. It's, there's a million, it's millions of characters and a ton of time and a lot of things happen. And the nature of a novel is that n- novels really rely on the idea of convergence, right? Where eventually you get things both in the same physical space and also to have the ideas of the book converge um, and also have the past and the present converge so that the backstories, the things that really motivate characters are placing pressure on a present moment. And you've got everything together in a room, right? And that's a delicate and complicated enterprise. Toward the end of City of Mirrors, maybe... You know, with the big climax, mm-hmm. though, you're going back and forth between one scene to another. Now, right. that, on the other hand, I assume came quickly because mm-hmm. you're as caught up in the story right. writing it as I am as a reader. Actually, no. Really? I mean, those are places where you really have to slow down. In fact, because the physical architecture, I mean, the, the final confrontation scene in this, and I don't want to use spoilers, involves a lot of the parameters of physical space. I mean, that's one thing I discovered. I had to learn to write large action set pieces for this trilogy. That was the one thing that I'd never done and which, to be honest, I found very few models for in literature. I I took more guidance, actually, from the movies, which I started observing as a kind of uh, how the point of view operated in complicated action scenes. And I said, okay, I have to try to sort of translate that into rhetoric to make it work. But the thing that really happens when you're writing scenes like that is there's an awful lot of physical detail in terms of time, space, and action, the old the old Aristotelian stuff that has to be carefully considered. And, you know, the final battle here depends an awful lot on the physical architecture of the space in which it occurs. Right. There is a sequence involving armies moving earlier on, mm-hmm. and that's about halfway through the book, mm-hmm. a little bit past that. Yeah. And that sequence, obviously, I'm in my head, I'm actually seeing... Alexandria being attacked right. and walking dead, but you must have written this first. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yes, before, yes, before Alexandria was attacked. Yeah, I mean, what are my models for things like that? You know, I don't know, the Iliad. Justin Cronin, let's go back to The Walking Dead mm-hmm. for a second. I, because, I'm happy to talk about The Walking right, Dead. Because yeah. the book City of Mirrors, to give a broad outline for anybody mm-hmm. who has not read the trilogy, mm-hmm. what we're talking about is a virus that sort of turns people into kind of zombie vampires. Fair enough, yeah. You know, right. Who move quickly. Yeah. So we've also got antecedents in the past couple of years. I mean, you were there first, but right. we've got World War Z. Right. Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead, which right. I don't watch. Yeah, um, you shouldn't. It's not as good as The <laughs> Walking Dead by a lot. We, we've even yeah. got the White Walkers of sure. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Lesser degree, I think. But... Mostly we have Walking Dead. It is an overwhelming presence in the culture right now. For you, as somebody writing Mm -hmm. about, now granted they're just brainless zombies, Mm -hmm. whereas your characters actually, they're being controlled. But there's a, a great similarity. Did it bother you at all? 
don't know. Not really. No, I mean, I don't have a sense of like, I don't want to say like rivalry or, you know, there's plenty of stuff to go around. There's plenty of space for well-told stories. I really like The Walking Dead. I mean, I, I borrowed certain zombie-like tropes in my book, but I, I, I am not anywhere near as actually engaged by the zombie as a monster figure than the vampire, which I think has many more like interesting details to work with. It's a highly detailed creature, whereas the zombie... Have you ever noticed how zombies are always dressed for work, right? That's the only right. way you can tell them apart. Like that's the UPS guy, and right, <laughs> that's the diner waitress, right? You know, it's the only shorthand to identity for them. But I love The Walking Dead. Why would that sort of take, get in the way of my novels? Not at all. One thing that uh, your books have in common mm-hmm. is that the real story aren't the zombies oh, yeah. or the Drax in your book. The real mm-hmm. story is how the humans interact. Even in the 12, where you have a totalitarian regime. Right, yeah. The only way these stories are consistently consumable, I mean, one's watched and one's read, so I'll use use the awful word consumed, but the the only reason they'd be consumable over a long period of time, which I I would say my books and The Walking Dead have in common, I mean, many seasons of The Walking Dead, and this is an awful lot of pages, is if the, the human interest is the most salient feature of, the narrative, the relationships between people, the choices that they make, what they come to value. That's what I've always written about. My first two books, quiet literary novels, for which I had no expectations of commercial success in any manner. I just was hoping for some kind of artistic success. It was about the same stuff. When you wound up going from summary to outline to story, mm-hmm. did any characters emerge? Like you've got, okay, we know Amy is the eight-year-old girl. But then we have other characters, Peter, Michael, Alicia, Sarah, mm-hmm. Carter, Hollis. Did any of these characters sort of say, I need to play a larger role? It wasn't one on your list, and it's the character of Lucius Greer, right, who emerges at the end of the first book, and by the end of the third book, he's a, a sort of primary mover. He's taken over the role of mystic that it, we have in the first book in the form of Lacey Antoinette Cadotto, the mystic nun from Sierra Leone. Right. And Greer was a character who kind of insisted more on his involvement because he's kind of a convert to the project of the books, to trying to rid the world of the great viral menace. And he's a soldier turned into really a kind of religious figure and an ascetic. And I was enormously attracted to his that transformation into his character in general because he seemed very wise you know one of the other things is the the books my characters are aging across the three books and in the third book my primary band of characters is they've, they've reached the age i am now they're in their early 50s you know with a lot of the same concerns and i liked greer all along for his age for his wisdom for being for being somebody who had accumulated a, a lot of experiences in his life it's tough for those of us reading the books in segments to go like two or three years between. Mm-hmm. You must have been aware of that. Yeah. And there is sort of um, this strange introduction to the second and third books. Right. But it's a little bit difficult to get back into it. Yeah. It isn't for me. <laughs> Did you worry at all about that? I or? couldn't worry about it. What was going to happen was going to happen. That was the amount of time they were going to take. They were very long. I tend to write between 400 and 500 pages a year. I am not going to do it any faster. There's a certain right. amount of time that's spent writing nothing because you're just figuring it out, which I tend to do mostly now while I'm swimming in the pool at the LA Fitness, you know, near my, three miles from my house. It just takes what it takes, and you want to write a good book. 20 years from now, I'll have no idea when I turn the book in, but my name will still be on it. I want to write good books. My headstone should say, 
good guy wrote good books. <laughs> well, you you also try to make it a little bit more literary than we we'll normally get in this sure. in this situation. Yeah. Two elements of the city of mirrors I want to talk about. One is that it takes place a hundred years after a vaguely in the near future event, right. which is this virus. You make sure in this book to include the results of global climate change. Yes. There's a part of each novel that takes place in what I call the here and now, because it's not really specified. The world's a little different from the way it is, you know, as right. you and I sit here in a studio. And it's, so it's not specified, but it is generally a world made of the same material as the world that we are in. And references to climate change are actually made fairly subtly and not with a great deal of emphasis, but they are made in the first volume. Will Guest's kind of complaint about life. It happens in that first section. He talks about the world slowly cooking like a package of peas in the microwave is the line. So you knew at that point that yeah. when you went 100 years in the future, because you'd had your sure. outlines, yeah. that that would be an element. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I started this trilogy right after Katrina, for instance, and then also Hurricane Rita, in which I participated in the largest urban evacuation in recorded human history, and which was a complete disaster. I mean, no, you can't get you can't get four million people out of Houston in 24 hours. There are only four roads. So the variety of things on my mind, and it was kind of a pessimistic moment, the things on my mind included tremendous concerns about the environment. I live in Houston, Texas, which of course is a place that is you know, the energy capital of the world and the third of the refined petroleum that people consume in this country comes from somewhere along the Houston Ship Channel. And you can't live there and not be aware of the cost. You know, Houston's being flooded about every other day, for instance, by global weirdness, right? I mean, right. the last big flood, the, what they call a tax day flood, April 15th, the frontier for that was about nine blocks from my house. Something is afoot, my friends. In City of Mirrors, because the action is taking place mm -hmm in an area near the water. Right. right? <laughs> yeah. Well, we if you look it. at the cover of the book, you kind of know what that area is. It's hard to miss that it's New York. But most of the action actually takes place and, in yeah, Kerrville. Yeah. What is Kerrville, and why did you choose it as the location of the third book, well, most of the Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the, Kerrville comes up in the first book as the location of a surviving human community of Texans who have formed basically a, a government based on a combination of shared civilian and military power. I chose Kerrville... I don't want to say arbitrarily when I came time to name the place in Texas where this had been established, because it, it wasn't completely arbitrary. My daughter went to camp near there, <laughs> as do most little girls from Houston. Just west of Kerrville, there's basically Camp Road, and there's like four girls' camps out there, and my <laughs> daughter went to Heart of the Hills, right? Okay. So I've been through there. I, mean, I chose it for a couple of reasons. Some of it, as I say fairly casually, it needed a source of water. It needed to be, seem fortifiable. I wanted to be in the hills. I wanted the area to be essentially pretty dry, and it was about the right size. You know, I had some physical requirements. I didn't want to use, you know, a major city, and I didn't want to use Austin, which would have been the other, sort of the other choice, but... Kerrville, in a sense, is also less known. It gave me the opportunity to manipulate some of the details. So where is Kerrville located in relation to Austin or Houston? West of San Antonio, right? It's sort of the next biggish town you'll come traveling west from San Antonio. So how many days would it take to get to the Gulf? Now, driving? Yeah. A day. Houston to San Antonio is about four, four and a half hours. Kerrville's about an hour beyond. That's not an idle question because it happens in the book. Right, yeah, no, right. characters are constantly moving between these places, and their mode of transit, of course, is 
it's not like hopping on the I-10 and, and stop in Chapel Hill for some barbecue and then right. dr- making the rest of the drive. It is more substantially more challenging. But the distances, the amount of time they would take to travel, all the roads, the names of the roads, all that, it's all real. I, mean, I, I adhered to the physical geography of Texas and other places in the book, too. I always adhere to the real geography in terms of those time, space, and action questions. And the characters themselves, except for Greer, you planned out the characters of Amy the eight-year-old, Peter, I'm trying to remember what his relationship is to... He's not related by blood to Sarah. He's actually Hollis's cousin, but that hasn't been mentioned for two books. People who lived in First Colony, they were all related, right? It's okay. At some point, because they've been living through several generations in a place where they uh, you know, they started with like 75 you know, inhabitants, right. they're going to end up all related in some way. You know, Low-level deafness is a problem for those people, <laughs> right? If you ever live in an isolated community when the gen- gene pool gets a little tight, deafness is the first thing you start to see. And they're all in some way related. And they all grew up together in a situation of very close proximity to one another and that's you know kind of the nature of nature of their bond which sets up the fact that all of them kind of knew each other all their lives right they're, they're deeply known to each other and and fiercely loyal even as they also have you know rivalries and matters of you know of some conflict they come in in the second half of the first book basically right, right? yeah right. and then they stay through the second book and through most of the third right yeah I mean each of the novels is structured where there's something in the here and now there's a story in the here and now followed by resuming the story of this group of characters that brings up my other question about mm-hmm the structure of the book in that mm-hmm. in the middle of the book is about 150 pages right. that deals with the character fanning patient zero if you want to right, call the first that. person who infected who survives why did you decide to create the story of his college days mm-hmm. and thereafter because it's the aboriginal catastrophe of this world right it's the thing that exists at the very beginning that causes it all and it's a basically a a love triangle that happens in college where you learn in the third book that Banning, who you know to be somewhere out there, he's the Oz behind the curtain, right? He's the Oz behind the curtain. You've known about him as the first person infected. And you know that in some ways he's socially connected Jonas Lear, the guy who started all this. And you go back to their lives in this novel and you discover that they were roommates in college, right? And their connection was very deep and the things that transpired between them really were the sown seeds of this disaster. What it does is it creates this almost short story, a present-day short story right. about other characters. Was there any difference in writing that? As well, it's in first person, so there's a ton yeah. of difference, right? Fanning actually tells his own story, right? The rest of the novel is told in a, in a, you know, a third-person narrative with, with modulating distances, but the, to go right into a voice, have the person speak directly, to another character, but you forget that's taking place. It seems like it's a conversation just for the reader to hear. Because he's kind of the hero of most of his story until he's not. Was that transition difficult for you? No, I loved it. It was great. I mean, one of the best things about writing each of these books for me is that I've been doing different things in each of them, right? right? Even though it's a part of a... There's a sort of giant novel superstructure and present here. Each of the books, I got to do something a little different because I wanted to. I mean, I, I, one of my best things about my job is I have no boss. You know, right. I, I get to make those, those kinds of decisions, and I always think they're the right ones for the story. Those I don't just—they're not self-indulgent. Fanning ne- needed to tell his story directly, 
And he's a very charismatic narrator. That's what I wanted to do with him. And I wanted him to tell a story that by the end of which you will have forgotten that he's the guy that ate North America, right? <laughs> I, I think that's important. I mean, you know, he may be the great villain of history, but he began his life as an innocent soul, just like you and me. And he was created as much by events as by character. He's actually a pretty decent guy, or he was, right, until certain things pushed him over the edge. And yeah, that's true for most villains. I think it's best to highlight contradiction in characters, and that's his contradiction. Justin Cronin, most of the book is what we would call science fiction, but it veers into sort of fantasy. Was that mm-hmm. always in the back of your mind? I never really put it in one genre or another. If you say, oh, you're a writer of fantasy, the answer is I have no idea what that means. First, as a genre within the marketplace, fantasy is not something that I've ever really consumed. Right. I have a rule, which is I don't I don't read anything with elves in it. I'm interested in the real world. It is thought of as science fiction. I kind of don't think of it that way. When I think of science fiction, I think of books in which science is a character. And this is, of course, a kind of post-industrial world where there's very little science actually operating. Uh, well, actually, the research on epidemiology and viruses right. and the fact that it takes place in our world and a virus goes ballistic. Yeah. That's science fiction. That's, you know, Earth abides any of these other Sure, books. it has those elements. It's merely a circumstance under which people enact their lives. The borderline between fantasy and science fiction right. is often, it happened because of science, it right. happened because of magic on, on the broadest That's actually a element. very good description. Yeah, I would concur, yeah. Right. However, in The City of Mirrors, there are events that occur that are not scientifically based. Correct. Was that element to the book always there or something that you added by the third book? What happened was it was not part of my initial design, but it asserted itself into the first book very quickly. Um, and these, these are questions of, yeah, does God exist in the world of this book? Right. And I used to tell my students, no matter what you're writing, whatever fiction you're creating, when you're writing a short story or a novel about events that did not happen, what you're doing is creating a temporary, imaginary world of fact and feeling. And one of the most salient points that exists in any worlds, whether or not God exists and is paying attention. So I said, even if it doesn't come up in the book, you've got to make that decision. It's very helpful to know when you're creating an artificial space if, in fact, there is a divine reality that is present also within that space. That's how I operate in my own life. I adhere to no particular religious practice, but I believe the universe is, <laughs> is splendid in ways we can't necessarily see with the naked eye. How's that okay. for a description, okay? And uh, as I was writing the first book, these questions... You know, you're going to write a story about the world that's destroyed by something called Project Noah. You're obviously invoking certain kinds of texts, um, certain kinds of mythologies and cultural memories. And in the character of Lacey Antoinette Cadotto, who seems to be either a bona fide mystic or somebody with terrible post-traumatic stress disorder, right, these questions came up very, very quickly and became part of the the sort of the, the binding contours of the story from the very beginning. Then as Amy matures mm-hmm. and changes, it becomes more evident that this is going right, on. Right. Mostly through the figure of Carter, right? Who's, right. who's somebody who is, who, like Lacey, is fairly deeply connected to what he's come to think of as the world behind the world. And in City of Mirrors, that becomes a major element. Major element, yeah. One other question. Uh, you did an interview, which I found online, and it was something that went, whoa, which is that the interviewer asked you about the strong women. And it turns out, of course, in reading this book, that mm-hmm. the two superheroes in the book, right. 
are both women. Well, I mean, it's not even the two superheroes. The, I think the primary movers of the action are all women, right? You have Amy, Alicia, Sarah, and Lore in the third book, a character I just loved, who's somebody emerged across the length of the story. And I had thought of them for a long time as the primary movers. And you know, I think the phrase I might have used in that interview is that the men are just the luggage handlers, right? They <laughs> practically are. Like, it's not entirely true. Peter, Michael, you know, Lucius, these guys have very important roles to play. And Michael, of course, is a major mover and shaker. And Peter's the, you know, becomes the president of the Republic of Texas, right? These are important characters. But the sort of deep strength and the real driving energy does, in fact, come from women characters. Yeah. How conscious was that when you were doing it? it totally automatic. Well, I think some of it had to do with the fact that I originally imagined the story and constructed its dramatic movement with a little girl, my <laughs> nine-year-old daughter. And when we came up with the story together, in which we did over a period of about 90 days while I was running as she was on her bicycle, I had no intention of actually writing anything. We were just having fun. So whatever she wanted, she got Right. <laughs> People often say, like, how did you name the major characters? And I always have to, I have to say to them, go ask my daughter. Do you want her email? All the names of the major characters came from her. Right. At the age of nine or ten. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was fine with it because I had no particular ambitions for writing it. And as a consequence, a lot of the initial choices came not just from her, but from a f kind of father daughter chemistry and. Yeah, I was talking to her on the phone about an hour ago. She calls me a couple times a day. She says I'm her work wife now because you know, we talk about books and writing. She's going to be a writer. She's a college student now studying right. playwriting and Slavic languages. Okay, you know we we still have that kind of chemistry, and so it came from that space, I think, and thus became girl centric and then woman centric as the characters <laughs> age in the, across the length of the stories. That same interview you made a comment and you know sometimes i ask people about comments they make in interviews and they give me a look and go did i say that yeah no they have no memory <laughs> of it whatsoever yeah the virus in the book is a metaphor for infiltration the virus is a metaphor for a lot of different things actually the way it operates the way it does goes about its, its work but a virus is a is an infiltrator right that's and, how viruses operate. And in the interview, you, you made mention of the fact that the thing about Walking Dead is that everybody has the virus, and when they die, they mm -hmm. transform, right. and that that's the complete and total infiltration. Now, that doesn't right. happen here, right? though there are different strains of the virus. Right. And I'm trying to remember, did we know there were different strains prior to this book? No, you, you, in the second book, it starts to become evident. Yeah, there's the, you, the, the time you spend in the, throw air quotes around it, here and now in the second book identifies a lot of the different properties, how things actually went down. But even then, not, not everything is known about it. Do you think you could take the fanning section from the third book mm -hmm. and then afterward, or in the middle of it, attach the um, the Jonas section from the second book and have one story? I don't know. It's just not how I imagined it. You right. know, when I got into the fanning section, when fanning gets to tell his own story, I mean, I'm not lying. I loved it. I loved writing it. I, for instance, I got to borrow a lot of for my own life. It's probably the most autobiographical thing I've written in a long time. <laughs> when you write in first person, there's a, a psychological proximity that's created between the, the writer and the character who's doing the talking. It's unavoidable. You're giving them your rhetoric, right? I went to Harvard. I'd always wanted to write about Harvard. I'd never found the occasion. 
to, you know, I knew this I, in my yeah. brain. It just came out. Yeah. You know, I'm going, well, wait a second. Yeah. What, what does this have to do with the rest of the book? <laughs> yeah. No, no, but it, it created the very specific, I was able to use the very specific social circumstance and social mechanics of a particular place and time to put characters in each other's way. Right. right. And fiction wants to feel like that. I mean, it really wants to feel real. And the one thing I've tried to do throughout the trilogy is take a fantastic, use the word fantasy, but the word fantastic is, I think, one I think of, the fantastic circumstance of this book and make it feel real. And if you have a familiarity with a highly detailed social environment, you know, in the early 90s, you know, you're going you're gonna to make use of it. And uh, I loved writing from his point of view. I loved his voice. I loved everything about that section. One other thing that comes up is that you're always writing about, no matter what you're writing about, you're writing about today, which comes right. back to the global climate change, sure. comes back to the totalitarianism in the second right. book. Yeah. I mean, it's always going to come back. Right, yeah. We're, we're, you know, somebody asked me in an interview, I can't remember what the question was, but I remember my answer. Um, we, you know, we're awful. We're screwing it up terribly. You know, we have this gift of a marble, marvelous blue-green planet, and we're wrecking it. Um, and I'm a parent, and that means that the, the future doesn't belong to me directly, but it belongs to my descendants. You know, they, my children will live in the world I'm not around to see, and we're making a total wreck of the thing. Well, there's a lot of focus on that in the third book, in right. fact, with the, with the orphans and with the kids. Yeah. You know, what kind of world will be left? Right. I mean, the, the, to be honest, the whole driver for the, for the, for the trilogy, I mean, it's, it's the relationship between parents and children. It makes sense because it was written by a dad and his kid. Not written right. by, but initially imagined by a dad and his, and his kid, about whom I was then, as I am now, enormously sentimental and at that time very worried because in the fall of 2005, the world looked like it was in a ton of trouble. I mean, as I said, combination of Katrina, Rita, and also what was happening in Iraq at that moment really right. looked like we had just screwed everything up. And, you know, we'd taken the situation of 2001 and made every, you know, 9-11 and made everything considerably worse. So it's those relationships, the parents and the kids, that's the one that binds you to the future you will not be around to see. And it stands at, it sits at the heart of a novel, which is really about how humanity will continue, and if so, what it will be as it continues. The framing device through the books mm -hmm. takes place a thousand years later. I mean, right. that's in the opening sequence. You can't miss it. Book. It's not a secret, yeah. It's not <laughs> yeah. a spoiler to mention something that's, <laughs> that's announced so early. Which, of course, brings in the notion of how fact turns into myth as well. Right. The book does this in two ways, and this is really one of the motivating concerns for me as a writer is the question of how something that becomes deep mythology in our culture, whether you want to call it religion or not, uh, begins as some kind of human reality down there in the dirt amongst ordinary human beings having, you know, having children, having jobs, having friendships and so on and going about the daily life. And, and then as a consequence, being present for and affecting events of enormous historic importance. And then a thousand years later, these people have become, for instance, saints, right? Or, you know, the real King Arthur was a guy, you know, was a local warlord who ate with his hands and lived on a dirt hill and was pretty good at organizing other local warlords into some kind of defense unit against invading Germans, right? That's who he was, no Camelot, right? But he right. became eventually a deep part of the pedigree of the English monarchy, right? There's a point when somebody mentions an Amalite nun, and, mm -hmm. you know, from right. Amy, and I'm like going, oh, I see what he's doing yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. But that's fun for you, too. Right. I told a very human story that 
Amy centuries and, from now is the basis for a, a whole way of cultural practice. Amy and her disciples. Exactly. You finished this book, and in that interview, you also talked about, while you obviously won't go back to this because this is a closed right. story, you could conceivably write other books, and there was one that was in the back of your mind as a real possibility mm -hmm. for a novel. Was it finding out what happens in Europe? No, that's that's resolved in the right. But, no, no, it's and it to 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 tell you what it is is a bit of a spoiler for the third book. But let me put it this way: there's a very large and significant object in the third novel that has a history to it ah. that doesn't find its way into the story for reasons having to do with narrative logic. There's only so much room in a novel to tell so much. Justin Cronin, I read the galley because the mm -hmm. book hadn't come out yet, sure. and then. The book itself, City of Mirrors, has maps, which right. the earlier books have too, yeah. but also has images of some of the archaeological digs right. at, from the end of the book. Uh, are those photos? Are those drawings? And what prompted you to do that? Well, they seem, first of all, consistent with the format of that moment in the story, which is a conference address. At a, you know, bad, bad news, a thousand years in the future, academic conferences are still being held. Right. Um, <laughs> And those things are always accompanied by a formal presentation on a discovery would be would be accompanied by um, by slides by images. Well, and, he actually talks about them. Right. Yes. The yeah. May I have the next slide, please? Right. But we have the actual slides in the book, and I've always loved books that will briefly break into a picture. You know, it's I, I don't know. It's just a, something personal, but we worked you know assiduously on those. They're a mixture of things of original artwork and then you know stock images that have been adjusted and so on. And we went back and forth on this stuff. Uh, they did a spectacular job with them. I think they're really, really cool. Well, it definitely looks cool. And now I wish I was reading it yesterday. But when I I went away for a week and when when I left, the books did not exist. That's so right. There you go, yeah. Justin Cronin. When I spoke to you about the passage mm -hmm. all those many years ago, you already had a movie deal, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, of course, it's not come out, and these right. days the answer is television. So right. where do things stand now? Does things stand with television. It took us a while to make this happen, but we are moving forward with a television project. Are we talking multiple seasons then? Yeah, I think so. We are in the process of kind of inking the deal, and I've been told there's only, only so much I'm actually allowed to say. And, of course, there are lawyers involved, and I'm terrified of lawyers, and their lawyers are bigger than my lawyers. But... They, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of talented, smart people are involved. They're looking at it as a, as a, as a network or a premium cable series. Like Game of Thrones. Correct. And the advantage, as with Game of Thrones, and what separates Game of Thrones off from everything else is that when you have a completed story, because Game of Thrones is completed even if it's only in one person's yeah, head, right. then the guns are already in the handbags. Correct. From the beginning. Correct. And the solutions already exist. Right. When you create the mystery, which right. is very different from Lost. <laughs> oh my God! Yes, I mean, I, I loved the story. I loved the show Lost until I realized that they had no idea how to get out. Right. That's right. And Game of Thrones and my book—they have a beginning, a middle, and end. There's a terminal point driving the story forward. I still don't know what the polar bear was about in Lost, and nobody's ever explained it to me. The story is that they had this huge Bible. Yeah. And then when it came time to the last season, they did nothing with it. Same thing with Battlestar Galactica. Right. Yeah, the last season got really odd, didn't well, it, as they're scrambling for the exit. Yeah. Right. But at least in the case of the Passage mm -hmm. trilogy, it does make sense. Yeah. 
So, Justin Cronin, your next book, is it going to be a nice, quiet literary no novel? No way. <laughs> <laughs> I like the loud stuff. I found out I was good at it, and I really enjoyed doing it, and I like a big plot because when people are running for their lives, they cannot help but be themselves. It's a great characterization device. Have you started work on it? Not really. I've been, I've been actually kind of doing that phase where you – I try to spend a few hours every day thinking about it. A lot of it in the water. That's my new trick is swimming with music on. I have an underwater MP3 player and I listen to very sort of spacey music and I swim and I think about it and I'm filling up legal pads with the, the project. I do have a project that I'm going to pursue, but I got to work out a lot of the dynamics of it. And at this point, you don't know if it's one book or multiple? That's the question. Actually, that's the one I'm wrestling with the most right now. Is this, is this one book or, or again, am I going to go back to the multiple volume model? And if so, why? And making sure the story is really compatible with that. Because the story has a natural shape. You've got to find the shape before you execute the story. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.